Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. I'm Saloni Sardana, Features Writer of FT Advisor and Financial Advisor. It's been a turbulent time for the global economy. Last month, the US yield curve inverted, sending the strongest signal that the bond market is predicting a recession. The yield curve is a visual representation of how much it costs to borrow money for different periods of time. It should typically cost more for a country to borrow money over a longer period of time. This is why longer-term bonds are usually more expensive than shorter-term bonds to compensate investors for taking greater risk. But this relationship has flipped in recent months as the three-month U.S. Treasury bonds have become more expensive than the 10-year U.S. bond. An inverted yield curve has predicted every single recession since the Second World War. Joining me today is Peter Elston, Chief Investment Officer at Seneca Investment and our investment reporter David Thorpe to discuss what the inverted yield curve means for clients. Hello, Peter. Hi, Saloni. So, Peter, could you firstly tell us what the yield curve is and why it's important? Sure. I think people tend to get a little bit scared about the term yield curve as if it's <laughs> something very complicated. And uh, the, the word curve implies uh, something mathematical, which a lot of people are not often not that comfortable with. And there's sort of, uh, you, you know, uh, similarities to the term curveball. It's absolutely not complicated. A yield curve is simply, as you suggested, uh, it's a, a visual representation of what's going on in a, a particular bond market. It's a way of comparing like-for-like -like bonds, whether US treasuries or gilts, over different maturities. So um, essentially, it's, it's a graph with uh, the maturity of bonds along the horizontal axis, uh, short term on the, the left, long term on the, the right and on the, the, the vertical axis is the, the yield. And of course, the curve, therefore, is the line of bond yields. And the curve is sometimes, most of the time, upward sloping. And that's because, as, as again, you suggested, investors by either investing or borrowing mm -hmm. over the long term need to get higher returns. So that's why longer-term returns tend to be higher than, than shorter-term returns. So that's essentially what a yield curve is. Uh, most of the time, as I said, it's uh, deep, meaning that long-term rates are, are higher than short-term rates. So what does the inverted yield curve mean then? To what extent do you believe we're heading towards a recession? Mm, well, you know, again, the term inverted yield curve is, is a term that seems to sort of fill people with, with terror. And, and obviously, recently, it's been becoming a, a commonly heard term. What an inverted curve means is that short-term rates become higher than, than long-term rates, in that if you can imagine the graph, you've got a downward sloping curve. And as you suggest, there is this relationship between a curve that goes inverted and the likelihood of a recession happening within a year or so. So that's why everybody is terrified about what uh, an inverted yield curve means. Now, the reason the yield curve mm -hmm. has become inverted or become steep is that we've seen a, a huge decline in bond yields, whether it's in, in the US or, or the UK, Japan or European countries. And that that decline that we've seen roughly since uh, November last year reflects the fact that people are getting very concerned about the, 
the prospects for the global economy. If prospects for the global economy are weakening, that means inflation is, people believe, likely to, to mm -hmm. fall. And that means that uh, long-term bond yields have fallen. Of course, not much has happened at the, the short end of the curve in that really reflects central bank policy. So the question is, does that inversion of the yield curve, does that mean that we're likely to see weaker growth? Now, historically, there's always been this very close relationship in the US, um, basically since the Second World War. Every time the yield curve has inverted, there has been a recession. And uh, I think that's a relationship that we should, uh, we should take uh, account of. So, Dave, what do you think? Do you think we're looming towards a recession? I think, as as Peter mentioned, the traditional relationship between the yield curve and the economy is well documented. Perhaps the most dangerous phrase that's ever used in investment is it's different this time. But the reason why it might be different this time is because of central bank policies. Interest rates are the lowest they've been in infinity since, since money was invented and people stopped trading shiny things. And we've had the policy of quantitative easing pushing bond yields downwards. So mm -hmm. we have a set of circumstances impacting the yield curve in whatever direction that have not really been present in all of the other times that are cited for historical precedent. And I wonder what Peter's thoughts are on, on that. Well, uh, I mean, David's right. There are a number of people out there who are suggesting that the yield curve doesn't have the same meaning that uh, that it did before and these arguments uh, have a, a feel of a sort of this time is different uh, argument one of the the people who is saying that you know the meaning of the yield curve has changed is ben bernanke the former us uh, fed chairman but then he was the the chap who uh, famously before the the great financial crisis said there were no signs signs of a housing bubble <laughs> we know what happened Next, there are distortions to, to bond markets, which means that, you know, one might have to be a little bit careful about what one reads into the yield curve. But in some ways, those distortions are, in my view, make it more likely that the prospects for a recession are, are quite strong. One of the reasons for that is, is quantitative easing. And the end of quantitative easing has meant that actually there's been much more of a, a tightening in monetary policy over the last few years than, than people believe just by looking at central bank policy rates. If you were to only look at central bank policy rates, you would see that, yes, there's been, I think, nine interest rate rises in the US. There's been one in the UK, none in Europe, none in Japan. So on that basis, you'd have thought, well, globally, you haven't seen much of a tightening. But the end of QE has been a de facto tightening. And if you add that into the, the equation, then, you know, the reality is that monetary policy has been tightened quite a lot over the last three, four years. And mm -hmm. therefore, the prospects for, for a recession might actually be greater. And if there will be a recession, when do you see that happening? <laughs> it's a good question. You know, the, I'm glad it's not the, one I have to answer. <laughs> <laughs> Golden question. I mean, the, the best way to, to answer that question is to, is to look at the empirical evidence of past recessions in the US. Uh, that's the country where you've got the, the greatest amount of data. And looking at when yield curves inverted and when, on average, mm -hmm. the recession occurred. Now, on that basis, the average time between curves inverting 
and the recession happening is just short of of a year. And and actually, to be fair, it's not actually the recession happening. It's when it's when growth rates start to to fall. Recessions are generally considered to be when growth turns negative, which will come sometime after growth starts to fall. On that basis, the yield curve in the US inverted in March of this year. Other countries, the UK, Japan, a little bit later. But on the basis of when the US curve inverted, you're looking at probably sometime growth starting to fall sometime early 2020. Now, moving to the U.S., markets have priced in a 25 basis points reduction to the current U.S. interest rate at this month's September 17th to 18th Federal Reserve meeting. This is also the same amount at which the Fed cut rates in July. Now, two Fed presidents have laid out very different arguments for why the yield curve has inverted. Eric Rosengren, president of the Boston Fed, has attributed developments in the Treasury market to economic weakness abroad, which means there's less reason for concern at the U.S. central bank. However, Robert Kaplan, a president of the Dallas Fed, blamed concerns over domestic growth for the inversion, highlighting the need for the Fed to cut interest rate. So what do you expect from the Fed at next week's meeting and what impact do you think this will have? As you say, uh, Saloni, markets are pricing in a 25 basis point cut. And it's always suggested that you know the worst thing that central banks can do is to surprise markets by too mm-hmm. much. And that would mean either not cutting or cutting by more. And, and I think that's unlikely. I think it's very likely that you'll see a, a 25 basis point cut. You know, the US economy has been stronger than economies pretty much everywhere, or at least in the, in the developed world. But you're now starting to see quite a lot of weakness in the manufacturing sector in the US. There is an argument that, well, you know, manufacturing represents a small percentage of of the US economy, and therefore that's not really significant. But the reality is that there's large parts of the services economy in, in the US, which are related to the manufacturing sector. So you, I think, will see a knock on effect. And these things happen slowly, they don't happen quickly. Uh, even when there's weakness in the manufacturing sector, it'll take some time for companies to start cutting jobs. And it'll take even longer for companies in the services sector that re- either relate to manufacturing or otherwise to start cutting jobs. When that happens, and you're already starting to see declines in job creation in the US, but when that happens, that'll be the first sign that we are probably heading for something quite nasty. So what implications do you think the trade war will have? The manufacturing uh, problems you've cited, is that as a result of the trade war or are there other reasons to it? Simplistically, the weakness in the manufacturing sector in the US and and elsewhere is related quite closely to the problems on on the trade front. Having said that, given where countries were in the cycle, there were probably other natural factors at work there as well. In other words, even before the trade war kicked off, you were seeing manufacturing activity peaking and therefore there was more potential to to weaken than than strengthen. So it's mostly related to trade, but I think as well it it was a natural uh, result of where where we, we are in the cycle. And David, what impact do you think the trade war will have on the yield curve? If you consider the traditional 
impact or effect of trade wars should be in inflationary because if you put up barriers to trade, it costs more to trade. If it costs more to trade, then they have to try to pass that on to the end consumer. And inflation has a very uh, particular impact because that, that long end of the curve that Peter mentioned, if you have to borrow, if you're lending for a longer period of time, you have to be compensated for the extra risk that you're taking. If you've got inflation on top of that, you want the amount that you're getting paid to be higher than the inflation rate or, or you lose money. So higher inflation should mean uh, higher bond yields at probably all ends of the, of the curve. Mm -hmm. What we've got is a very strange scenario where all of these inflationary things are happening. Uh, Peter mentioned that for a long time, unemployment has been very low in the US, which should be inflationary because if people weren't working and then are working, they have more money, they spend more money and that's inflationary. But inflation has not really gotten out of control. And now we have the trade war, which is having the impact, as Peter said, on the manufacturing sector. But again, the inflation is not really coming mm. through. And it's hard to really predict whether the inflation is going to come through because it's it's the dog that hasn't barked for a very, very long time. <laughs> if inflation comes through, it does impact the yield curve by pushing yields generally upwards. Mm. But we've had a very strange scenario where yields have generally been going backwards, getting lower. You mentioned the Fed meeting. If you have higher inflation, then the traditional response of central banks in normal times is to put rates up, not down. But as you said, the expectation from the market is that the Fed will, will cut rates, which implies in normal times that the Fed do not expect inflation to be a problem. If they're right and inflation is not a problem, then uh, we're in a very strange scenario where we're having the impact of the trade war causing uh, trade volumes to, to fall in manufacturing, as Peter said, but not having the inflation on the other end. And that makes for a very unpredictable environment. Mm, yeah, yeah, it's very, it's a very interesting point David makes there because a reduction in trade, which is exactly what we're seeing at the moment, hits volumes, it hits economic activity, but it, it has the opposite effect on inflation. And, and that means that if you've got prices of goods being pushed up because of tariffs, but you've got at the same time economic weakness, that is the definition of a, a stagflationary environment. Mm -hmm. In other words, where there's stagnation, economic stagnation, but you've got inflation. Now, we haven't had that in the world for a very long time, since the 1970s. And I think, you know, most people's memories are, are very short. If we do end up with that sort of scenario, that has very significant implications for financial markets. Just bringing it back to this question of, of the yield curve, it's very hard to know what the effect of higher inflation might have on, on the yield curve. You could have a, a strange effect where you've got inflation component of long-term rates rising, but the real yield part of long-term bond yields falling. So you have one, one effect of that compensating for the other. But uh, it could be a, a very interesting scenario for, for yield curves. And do you see both countries actually reaching a trade agreement? This is a, a very, I was reminded, uh, I don't know if uh, if you remember uh, Dr. Seuss. <laughs> yes. One of his stories was about the north going Zach and the south going Zach. And these two creatures meet and neither of them budges. They refuse to give way. And over the, the course of the next few years, overpasses are built over them, etc. And they just stand there stubbornly. And, and it seems as if China and, and the US, uh, neither of them is going to give way. They are both 
uh, well, they're the two biggest superpowers. There's a huge loss of face element to to backing down. Like a uh, reputational damage, you mean? Absolutely, yes. And so whilst you might have the odd period in which, you know, there's a little bit of positivity about the prospect of, of negotiations, whether things actually change is another matter. And I don't really see see how that can happen until things get so bad that that both countries agree to finally come to the table. But until that happens, I really don't see either side uh, giving way. And moving on to the rest of the world, Germany has also been suffering some economic weakness. What measures do you expect from the ECB to combat this and what impact will it have on the yield curve? Mm. Yeah, well, the as you say, uh, Germany has been uh, badly affected by the uh, by the trade war. If anything, it you know might have been uh, impacted more than than the US or China. That's because German industry is dominated by car manufacturers, and they obviously sell a lot of cars both in in Asia mm-hmm. and and in the US, right? So mm. they've been caught both sides. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, and so you know you've seen manufacturing uh, activity in Germany decline. In terms of the options open to the ECB, they don't really have many options because interest rates, short-term interest rates in in Europe are actually negative already. So what can they do? Well, I suppose they can they can make rates even more negative. But ultimately, what you probably are looking at is more quantitative easing because that's that's the only option you really have when short-term rates hit zero. There is also talk of this slightly strange thing called uh, modern monetary theory, which I won't go into details there. But we'll that's save that for another day. <laughs> absolutely, save that for another day. But that, I think, be only be when we have the next recession that, that you really get more talk about that. But the idea behind that is that you can use fiscal policy much more uh, actively to try to, to prevent uh, uh, economic weakness. Do you expect much of a policy departure under Christine Lagarde now that she's going to be head of the ECB? Uh, a very good question. I mean, I suspect that the reason specifically for her appointment doesn't relate so much to monetary policy, but it relates more to trying to unify countries to create a more sort of federal Because fiscal network. One of, one of the challenges that the ECB have is that they've got to try and find the right monetary policy for lots of different countries that have lots of different economic issues. You, you mentioned, for example, Germ- Germany's uh, s- slowing down, but the monetary policy that, that a, a manufacturing economy needs is probably very different to the monetary policy that a country that's not in in recession, like Ireland or France, for example, they they probably want something different. And an interest rate cut is, again, supposed to lead to uh, higher inflation. That may not be what works or what is suitable in France or another country, but it may be what Germany wants, or it may be that the inverse of that is correct. Whoever is appointed mm-hmm. uh, ECB governor, they're going to be obviously faced with the same issues. Uh, but I think what what Christian Lagarde brings to the table is is more her understanding of things at a political level. Speaking about monetary policy, the policies of quantitative easing and historically low interest rates have resulted in both bond and equity markets moving quite steeply and in the same direction as each other. This sort of defies their conventional relationship of moving in opposite directions. So 
This view has influenced portfolio construction theory for multi-asset investors, which typically blended equities and bonds in roughly a 60 to 40% proportion, depending on how risk-averse their client is. So what should the ideal portfolio look like for an investor in this current low-yield environment? How do you think financial advisors can protect their clients? This is the million-dollar billion-dollar question uh, at the moment, um, because what we've had over the last 40 years is we've had this wonderful bond bull market. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, bond markets have achieved sort of high single-digit returns across the world for the last 40 years, and you, you're now at the point where bonds are okay. incredibly expensive. Um, you know, the, the U.S., the 10-year gilt in the UK in real terms is now minus 3%, which means if you if you buy that and hold it for 10 years, your real return on that is going to be minus 25%. No risk. That's that's guaranteed. So what do you do in that sort of environment? Well, you need to look for bond, so-called bond proxies, things that have some element of safety, but where you've got decent yields. And perhaps you, you might look at infrastructure, trust infrastructure after all, is, is quite a safe investment. Well, equities, mm-hmm. interestingly, have ways of dealing with the sort of headwinds that are impacting bonds. They can cut workforces, they can cut prices, increasing prices. So in, in some respects, equities may be safer than bonds. But I, I certainly wouldn't suggest uh, increasing an equity portion to say 80-20, I'd say reduce your bond exposure, but look for for bond proxies. You're never going to get anything that does exactly what bonds have done the last 40 years. You're always going to have a little Mm -hmm. bit of volatility, even from uh, infrastructure trusts. But certainly those can add something to, to portfolios. Okay, Peter, thank you very much. And thank you, David. It's an interesting time to be a journalist. We'll see how the global economy pans out in the next few months and whether we'll get a recession or not. Thank you very much for tuning in and tune in to ftadvisor.com for next week's podcast. Thank you. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.